T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. Blast off into the potosphere with DGP nominal. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Joining me on the show tonight is fellow podcaster and enthusiast of all things in the world of geekdom, John Berger, how you doing sir? I'm doing very well, and yourself? It's a bit late over here and uh, that's all good with me. <laughs> I think that's a good thing. If you start to nod off, I'll just give you a virtual shake somehow. Uh, there'll be some way of using a virtual cattle prod or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> would you like to tell the listeners a little about yourself and your podcast? Oh, my podcast is the widescreen.org moving media podcast. And I only call it that because I haven't been able to come up with a more marketable short name for it. And it's uh, pretty much just movie and media and stuff like that. Uh, meant specifically from a consumer's perspective, not from an, a Hollywood insider or someone whose life revolves around these sorts of things. So it's just pretty much a movie and home theater for the average Joe by the average Joe. Excellent. So shall we get this uh, episode launched into the podosphere? Oh, I, absolutely. Okay. Let's kick things off with a news story about the uh, recent Orion uh, flight test. Engineers plan to redesign part of the Orion capsule's um, self-rightening flotation system that only partially engaged as the spacecraft flashed down in the Pacific Ocean following the orbital flight test in December. The airbag system was the only part of the Orion flight test that did not go according to plan. The airbags are designed to flip the Orion capsule upright if it lands upside down. The craft splashed down in the so-called Stable 1 configuration, or right side up as everyone else would call it, um, after its test orbit flight on the 5th of December. The Orion spacecraft launched from Cape Canaveral uh, aboard a Delta IV heavy rocket and reached a maximum altitude of 3,600 miles during the mission, which lasted about four and a half hours from takeoff to splashdown. Lockheed Martin will deliver a post-mission report to NASA on the 4th of March, and at first glance, uh, the flight's results show the Orion spacecraft met 85 of 87 test objectives outlined before the launch. That's pretty impressive, yeah. considering it's a you know a completely brand new spacecraft. It says the two we didn't meet uh, was to inflate all of the crew's uh, module uprighting system bags and to keep them inflated for an extended period of time, said Bill Hill, NASA's Deputy Associate Administrator for Ex Exploration Systems Development. What a title. <laughs> <laughs> They're supposed to be able to maintain inflation for about 24 hours, and of course they didn't meet that capability. Pyrotechnic detonators in the airbag system fired as designed, but only two of the airbags pressurised and stayed inflated. Hill told the NASA Ad Advisory Council's Human Exploration and Operations Committee there's another one, on, on the 13th of January, that engineers will have to change the design of the internal plumbing that feeds the airbag system. While we're on the subject of Orion, the European Space Agency have signed a contract with Airbus Defence and Space for the construction for the service module for the Orion capsule during exploration mission or EM1 
uh, with a launch set for late 2018. The, um, and that's the, uh, the, the proposed first step to Mars mission? Um, yeah, pretty yep. much. So that, that one will again be unmanned, but it's just to see how far they can get with it, really. The Orion service module, which provides propulsion power, thermal control, and elements of life support system for the Orion, uh, is based on the European Space Agency's automated transport vehicle, or the ATV, which is their cargo freighter. ESA has been reimbursing NASA for Europe's 8% share of the space station by launching five of these transport vehicles, which was decommissioned in July. The ATV program paid for Europe's space station bills into 2017. Under the new contract, valued at 390 million euros or 488 million US dollars, Airbus will design and build one service module and build parts for the second to equip ESA of its space station maintenance duties to NASA between 2017 to 2020. The final ATV is due to undock from the ISS on the 14th of February and burn up on re-entry to Earth on the 27th of February. ESA astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti will be responsible for undocking and she had this to say about it. I think it will be quite an emotional moment for me and for the entire uh, ESA community and especially the, the ATV community on the ground and uh, I'm actually honored that I'll be on board for that and very happy that a European astronaut will be on board to send on its way the, the last ATV, Georges Lemaitre, um, and uh, wrap up this very, very successful program. So yeah, it's, it'll be a quite a sad time for ESA in that respect because it's the only way of getting European bits and pieces um, up to the space station so from now on um, they'll be relying on the commercial crews <laughs> to be honest well, that's, I mean SpaceX is just they're doing amazing things anymore so I wouldn't be surprised if they're going to be able to step up and do it SpaceX for me is just where it's heading I think um yeah. Although there are rumours, you know the um, the crew situations. It's it's a sort of like a race between SpaceX and Boeing. Um, I think NASA probably favour Boeing because it, it's part of the old school, isn't it? It's one of the companies that have always worked with them. Yeah, but I mean, but SpaceX has they've proven themselves, and you know when, you, when you've got someone who's like look at all the stuff that SpaceX is doing and has done SpaceX is now what NASA used to be I think there's more excitement with with SpaceX than than, than you get with NASA I mean you look when they have a launch I mean mm -hmm. the, the the entire staff are there at, at that window virtually noses pressed against the glass um, <laughs> waiting for it to launch and they just absolutely go crazy when when it happens you know <laughs> Um, and I, I love that. I really do. <laughs> well, I mean, NASA, all, you know, having, because it is kind of American government run, it always kind of had that bureaucracy level feel to it. Whereas SpaceX just has the feel of these are geeks who love space, who love science, and are getting together to do stuff. Well, it's just got a different feel than NASA does. Yeah. And, and look at the space of time that they've actually managed to get where they are now mm -hmm. I mean what is it 12 years something like that yeah it's amazing Elon Musk is just what goes on inside that head <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know that my brain could comprehend what goes on inside his head. <laughs> TGP Nominal, where the universe is a figment of its own imagination. The next story, uh, I think it's one of yours, John. It's the uh, the America's first one-year space voyage. Yep. NASA's Scott Kelly is going to be up there for one year up on the International Space Station, which is the longest uh, you know, for any American tour to go up there. Uh, he's going to be doing experiments primarily about what happens on long-term space effects on the human body. He's getting ready for basically eventual uh, you know, humans going to Mars. And, you know, we already know that there are some issues going on, like uh, just from space shuttles and so forth, where or and other International Space Station issues where they find out stuff like, oh, the, the heart volume actually decreased while they were in space and things like that. So his mission is pretty much going to be all about the kind of biological effects that extended space travel has. So he said that uh, what makes this exciting for me, this one year flight is about the science and everything we're going to learn from expanding the envelope on the space station greater than we've currently done. If we're ever going to go to Mars someday, the International Space Station is really a great platform to learn much more about having people live and work in space for longer durations. So he's actually going up there with a Russian cosmonaut, uh, Mikhail Kornienko, I hope I pronounced that properly. I mean, that in itself is cool because now I've got an American and a Russian pretty much on the same group being up there for a year. Yeah. And he, he said, you know, well, you know, there are no borders in space. It's a great example of how countries can work together, especially for politics on the ground, which is always cool to see that kind of, of uh, cooperation going on, too. So, I mean, they've both been to the space station already, and Kelly flew a couple of space shuttle missions. But, I mean, this is going to be one year in space, which that in itself, that, that's an amazing testament to just, uh, you know, being in that one confined area for a whole year. But, you know, it's all going to be about how the human body changes on long space flights. So it's it's pretty clear that NASA's got their eyes set on uh, uh, launching humans up to Mars soon. And this is just the first step of it. Well, not only that, I believe that his brother Mark is going to be involved in this as well mm -hmm. uh, because they're going to be doing similar tests on him on Earth over the space of the year to see the differences there, being as they're identical twins, aren't they? It'll be interesting to see how that pans out as well. Yeah, that's going to be interesting, especially when they already know what short-term flights can do. Mm -hmm. You know, They've already seen impacts with that, and now all of a sudden going to go for a year, so... It'll be interesting to see. We might actually see a manned flight to Mars in our lifetime. Yeah, but I don't think it's going to be from the um, usual suspects. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say on that one. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. <laughs> the, the problem that they've got is things like, well, as we know, that um, your, your spine grows uh, whilst you're in space, and obviously your organs actually start floating upwards as well, yeah. uh, which causes a, quite a, a few problems um for so for a, a long period of time it would be very interesting to see what's going to happen there now my next story actually ties in with that one quite nicely uh, musical star sarah brightman is expected to blast off in october for a 10-day stay on the international space station um the famed soprano who starred in andrew lloyd webber's phantom of the opera will pay 34 million pounds or 52 million dollars for a round-trip ride aboard the Russian Soyuz capsule, which is... The trip is being arranged by uh, the US-based Space Adventures company, and Sarah Brightman will become the eighth tourist and first professional singer to visit the orbital outpost. Um, the last tourist to fly uh, was Cirque du Soleil founder Guy Lalibert, 
who spent uh, 11 days aboard the station in 2009. Um, Sarah Brightman's seat became available on the Soyuz because a replacement capsule needs to be sent to the ISS. Soyuz capsules are only capable of staying in space for six months and because of um, Scott and Mikhail's um, year-long trip this will be halfway through their stay in orbit which means the capsule that they arrived in will need to return to Earth before the end of their mission. The incoming station crew member, uh, Sergei Volkov, will pilot the replacement Soyuz that will carry European Space Agency astronaut Andreas uh, Mogensen and Sarah Brightman. Um, Sarah Brightman also purchased a seat on Virgin Galactic's um, suborbital rocket plane. At a cost of £132,000 or $200,000. And she's also supporting a science-themed Galactic Unite Brightman scholarship program as well. So she's getting quite into this. It must be nice, though, to be able to afford to do all that stuff. Yeah, I've got some money. I'll just go up to the space station. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's <laughs> people in the past. I mean, I do believe there was a member of InSync, the boy band, who um, sort of ran out of money halfway through paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Based on Brightman's comments during a questions and answer session, it could be an entertaining ride. Uh, one journalist, for example, asked whether she was concerned about encountering aliens. <laughs> um, and, okay. and, and she answered, I'd love to be kidnapped by an alien. And when a reference was made to The Fifth Element, uh, a movie where she provided the vocals for the alien diva, um, she answered, I, I probably am similar to the diva, <laughs> without all the tentacles that she had. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> yeah, I think they're going to have fun on there when, when she's up there, I think. <laughs> That's just the kind of comment where what, what can you say to it? Yeah, I know. What, what is, uh, you know, a proper journalist ask a question about encountering aliens. <laughs> the next one is the Hubble takes a 1.5 billion pixel mosaic of Andromeda. That have you seen that image? Well, I've seen a bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you can only see a little bit of it, but I mean, just zoomed out. It only encompasses maybe a quarter of what we can see of Andromeda. And so it's stretched about 400,000 light years. But this one, well, okay, it's not one photo. It's a bunch of them stitched together. But it has over 100 million stars in it. The raw file itself is 4.3 gigs in size. I mean, that's just massive. NASA that's says huge. that to be able to actually display this in its raw format, you would need 600 high-def televisions. That's just... It's just... It's amazing. And they, they actually released a... There's a website out there that lets you just zoom in, you know, as much as it can so that you can actually see it in its native resolution. And you just keep zooming and zooming and zooming, and you're still seeing all of these these intricate little details put into it. And it's just amazing. They, they did bring out smaller versions of it, but even at that, uh, the one version is roughly 350 megs in size, and then they've got another one that's not as compressed, and that's 608 megs in size. Wow. This, <laughs> this thing is amazing. It's, it, it does make you feel very small <laughs> in the whole oh, yeah. picture of things. And then you realize how many other thousands or millions of galaxies are there like this that each have hundreds of millions of stars 
And yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty insignificant compared to that. And then you get people that say that we are the only ones here. Uh, you know, I wasn't going to tackle that. <laughs> I wasn't going to go you, there. <laughs> you, you can't say that really, can you? I mean, there's, no. there's got to be somewhere in all these alternative galaxies all over the place that oh. yeah there's got to be something I, somewhere i can't yes yeah, i wasn't going to tackle that one otherwise i'd have the phrase ready for it <laughs> but there's something like if if one tenth of one percent of all stars had planets and one tenth of one percent of those planets were actually habitable then we'd still have a couple hundred thousand habitable planets just in our galaxy it's, it's difficult to comprehend isn't it mm-hmm. and, and then think of how many other galaxies there are that might have the same condition yeah yeah th- i'm sorry there's just no way in my mind that we're the only intelligent life well so although uh, although I mean, the, the one joke from calvin and hobbes uh, used to be that i think the surest sign that there's intelligent life in the universe is that none of it has tried to contact us um yeah uh, um <laughs> I think if 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 any of any of the uh, ETs out there had actually seen us from our transmissions and things, <laughs> I, I think they'd avoid us avoid us like the plague. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All they need to do is oh, this is an example of their reality TV. We're gone. Yeah, that is just. <laughs> I think the, the, the Kardashians would just yeah that would no anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, who's what's the other cre- honey boo boo oh my god oh <laughs> another shameful american export uh, we have our own uh, we have our own versions of things i don't know if you've heard of programs like towie the only way is essex um no. it's it's oh how can i describe that fake tan and and very white teeth oh god jersey shore kind of yeah Ooh, <laughs> ooh. Uh, we have our own version of um, Jersey Shore over here called Geordie Shore. It's set up in the New Course, Newcastle um, area. Um, sim- it's a very similar program. <laughs> oh, we have so many American exports that I feel the need to apologize for. <laughs> no, the BBC is considered to be, you know, really good quality stuff over here. Let's try to keep it that way. Yeah, I mean, we have a channel in the, in the UK that the the BBC have called BBC Four, which mm-hmm. is their um, it's, yep. it's full of uh, documentaries and and things like. That. I, I I watch it a lot because uh, there's so much on there, especially science. Actually, a lot of science uh, based programs on there, which um, keeps me going anyway. <laughs> Believe me, I wish we got that over here. Yeah, you'd you'd love it. You really would. Crichton, what are you doing, man? Oh, sir. I'm listening to The Garbage Pod. It's a podcast I found in the podosphere. Now, that leads me on to one of my favorite topics, 3D printing. (laughs) Astronauts on the International Space Station have used a zero-gravity 3D printer to produce a working socket wrench complete with a ratchet action using digital plans that were emailed to the station by (laughs) NASA Mission Control on Earth. Now that's just that is amazing, isn't it? Well, it, it sounds like science fiction, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Engineers at Made in Space, which built the experimental printer, overheard space station um, astronaut Barry Butch Wilmore uh, mention on the radio that he needed a socket wrench. The company used used computer aided design to draw up the plans 
produced an earthbound version of the spanner for safety uh, certification by NASA and then the plans were relayed to the ISS where it took four hours to print out the finished product. The that is just one of the things that puts a smile on your face. It's like we're, we're a step closer to a Star Trek, um, not transporter, but well, yeah, even a transporter. A, a replicator. Replicator, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. It, when you hear about the the negativity when they first came out about you know these 3D printed guns, when well, first... I mean that that's a different. I mean that's a political hot topic. Yeah, well, the fact that it's it hasn't been tested. The only way you can test it is by pulling the trigger. Yeah, uh, anything can happen. <laughs> it's just dumb <laughs> yeah i mean i'm a gun enthusiast but there's no flipping way i would pull it no 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 no, no i mean no. A, a gun is in the right hands if it's if it's well constructed and everything else but with that you've got no guarantees have you no. to be honest <laughs> but but a wrench or spanner yeah that i could do now, did you also hear that nasa has actually made the spanner plans available i didn't hear that no yeah that, that they actually like a week after that was made you could actually download the, the 3D plans for that right from NASA's website. So wow. you can make that exact same wrench on, well, you know, for those few people who actually have a 3D printer, you can actually make that same one and it's available. Well, there's a magazine. Each week you'll get different parts for the 3D printer and then you can construct it yourself. <laughs> I like that. I want a 3D printer so badly. I've worked out how many uh, weekly parts of the magazine you need and it worked out to be about 600 pounds by the time you bought it but that, even that worked out fairly cheap in the scope of some of these 3d printers but not only that yeah. you get you get plans and things with it you get tips and and things on how to create different things with the, with the printer once you've got it up and running and the good thing about it is there's no soldering or anything involved it's one of these yeah. you just click it into place and away you go that is very cool i'm actually thinking of subscribing to it actually. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it says here that the, the socket wrench, that this is a quote actually, uh, the socket wrench we made uh, is the first object we designed on the ground and sent to digitally into space on the fly, said founder Mike Chen, who actually follows us on Twitter. <laughs> which is kind of cool nice. um, we designed one in CAD sent it up to him faster than a rocket ever could have got there <laughs> it also marks the end of our first experiment we made uh, a sequence of 21 prints that together make up the first tools and objects ever, ever manufactured off the surface of earth the 3D printer was delivered to the ISS in September 2014 and the first thing it was made was a sample component for the printer itself which was actually what looked like a plate with a um with a company logo on it uh, <laughs> the space agency hopes one day to use the technology to make up parts for broken equipment in space the company plans to replace the machine that they've got up there now with a bigger commercial printer later in the year and also the European Space Agency plans to fly its own 3D printer sometime in the year. Meanwhile the ratchet and the other items made by the ISS printer will be returned to Earth for uh, a detailed comparison with corresponding parts produced on the ground to see what strength and things like that whether it makes any difference well, that's true to the concept of it never thought about that i mean you have to does have to have a gravity environment to hold it in place so yeah. did doing it in a no grav environment change how it was made 
if you can produce things on the space station I mean what think about when you get to other planets and things you, you'll be able to make things there rather ha- than having to take loads of bulky items with you yeah just load them up with plastic yeah definitely well not necessarily plastic I mean if well, you, no, for the 3d printer yeah I mean the, there are 3d printers that can produce in in all manner of different uh, materials though I mean you can there are metals that you can use yeah. alloys um, even even sugar I mean they're even, they're making cake <laughs> decorations with 3d princess yeah. yeah I was, was going to say they want their pizza 3d printer yeah I saw that I don't know what to make of it, it, it I looks, don't know it looks more like cheese on toast um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will agree. I don't know that I could eat what it made. <laughs> the next story on the list we have is one of yours, actually, John. It's the New Horizons approaches Pluto. I guess part of me is just more excited for this than I really should be because of the fact that you know we landed a spaceship on a comet, for crying out loud, and got pictures of it. Yeah. And, and now suddenly we're now going to get a uh, the new horizons is going to be within it's what they say here 13,600 kilometers of pluto that right there is amazing to me because you figured that that's roughly 8,500 miles for you fellow yankees who can't do metric um (laughs) but you figure that that's about the distance from like london to the western coast of australia wow well the distance from the earth to the moon is 28 times greater than that. That's how close this thing is going to be because the Earth to the Moon is, is about 385,000 kilometers as opposed to the 13,000 that this thing is going to get to Pluto. So we're going to get some just amazing pictures. Even though the camera itself might have been a 10-year-old technology, we're still going to get some absolutely amazing photos of this thing. And it's, it's going to be at its closest point in June or July. Here it is, July 14th. Uh, that's when it's going to be. I mean, the only pictures we've got of it right now are from Hubble, mm-hmm. and they're blurry at best. I mean, some people are going to say, oh, well, it's only a dwarf planet. What's the big deal? The, the deal is it was a proper planet when it was launched. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> the deal is look how far out in space it is, and we're going to be getting a man-made craft 13,000 kilometers from it. That's true. That is just amazing. And the exciting piece for me is there is a piece of me on there. Before they launched it, they they asked people to send in their names to be uh, included on the CD. Uh, that was launched actually on, <laughs> on the craft and I've got a certificate and everything to say that my name <laughs> is on that craft. So. Nice. <laughs> It's not I was about the, to say, what did you send up a lock of hair or something? <laughs> it's, it's not the only one uh, that I've been involved in. Um, uh, my name was also on the, the Orion capsule when it went up. Oh, nice. And uh, my photograph, uh, along with millions of other people, um, w- yeah. was on the last ever flight of, sh- of the shuttle as well. Ooh, so, nice. <laughs> I had to. I had to be involved. okay pictures of pluto but just the fact that it's going to be so close you know and then just the excitement of look at the images that we got from that comet lander i'm just i'm actually really excited to see what this looks like yeah any far off place like that i mean we we've seen some of the moons on on some of the other planets um quite closely um but as you say this is the furthest we've ever been and who knows we might even see something else that we hadn't seen before in the vicinity that's going to be so cool right 
Um, we'll be right back after this. Because you know I'm all about that space, about that space, space travel. I'm all about that space, about that space, space travel. I'm all about that space, about that space, space travel. I'm all about that space, about that space. Yeah, it's pretty clear. I ain't commercial crew, but I can launch it, launch it like I'm supposed to be. Cause I got that boom, boom that all the astros chase. All the space flight to all the right places. I see Orion crew working that ship nonstop. You know we're going far. Now put that last on top. If you got boosters, boosters, just raise them up. Cause every spacecraft needs propulsion from the bottom to the top. Hey, they're working so hard. Don't you love these NASA guys? You know I'm all about that space, about that space, space travel. I'm all about that space, about that space, space travel. I'm all about that space, about that space, space travel. I'm all about that space, about that space. I'm bringing rockets back. Go ahead and tell the whole world that. Come on board, it's that. Cause every spacecraft needs propulsion from bottom to the top. Hey, they're working so hard, don't you love these NASA guys? They will take us so far the first time that Orion flies. You know we're traveling to deep destinations for too long. So if that's what you're Cause you know I'm all about that space, about that space, space travel. I'm all about that space, about that space, space travel. So that was uh, NASA Johnson's parody of Megan Trainor's uh, All About That Bass, which is the follow-up to their NASA Johnson-style uh, YouTube hit, which is absolutely amazing. I don't know. Have, have you seen the NASA Johnson-style, John? No, I haven't, but oh my God, of all the songs to parody. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's brilliant. It's it, the the uh, the NASA Johnson yeah. style video has got Mike Massimino in it, and uh, that's just good enough for me. <laughs> yeah, re- regrettably, the way they did that—that that is the perfect song to parody regarding space. But, oh my God, that song grates on my nerves. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's also oh, well. a Star Wars one as well. It's the uh, it's it's all about the that base, no rebels, which was which was quite yeah, good. I've heard of that one too. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, uh, it's. I think they're brilliant in the, in respect that it brings attention to NASA. That's what it's all about. I mean, if, if we can get them to watch these things and then think, oh, that looks interesting, and then move on to oh. other videos. Um, hey, anything that gets them involved in, in the space and science, that's a good thing. Yeah, the the the, the good old uh, STEM subjects, as as they're called. But they've they they're now called Steam. For some, they've it's the science, technology, uh, engineering, arts, and math. Okay. <laughs> Why they've included arts in there as well? I have no idea. I suppose design. Um, yeah. Um, I, mean, I guess it depends on how you define art, but <laughs> I mean, you know, to say that it's. It'd be a lie to say that it's not a skill or a talent to be able to do all that. Oh, no, so, definitely. Uh, I can... Uh, okay, I, I'll give him that. But um, the, the first first time I heard that they'd added... I was like, what, Steam? What, what's the A? <laughs> and uh, it was arts. I was trying to get my head around it. And my, uh, my other half was an art student, and she was going, well, you know design technology it all goes together hand yeah. in hand computer aided design that's kind of art you need to be able to draw perspective and things so yeah I get that I guess I get that <laughs> now there's been a lot happening on board the International Space Station recently uh, including the the US section of the space station which includes the European and Japanese modules was temporarily evacuated on the 14th of January after an alarm sounded warning the crew of a possible leak of toxic ammonia into the station's cabin astronauts Terry Verts Barry Butch Wilmore and Samantha Cristoforetti joined cosmonauts uh, Eleanor Sarova Alexander uh, Sanakutiev and Anton uh, Shakaplerov in the Russian section for most of the day. At about 3pm Eastern, 8pm GMT, Christopheretti and Verts re-entered the US side wearing masks and took samples of the station's air and found no ammonia, uh, according to NASA. Officials now think that the, the false alarm may have been caused by an error in the computer used to beam information to and from the space station. The computer called the Multiplexer Demultiplexer now seems to be in good shape after officials, get this, turned the device off and on again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it works for Windows, just reboot. (laughs) Uh, Mission controllers are still trying to work out exactly what sets off the alarm and have reactivated the cooling loop that powered down because of it. NASA do not think that the research on the station was negatively impacted because of the evacuation. The false alarm was the third of its kind to occur during the 15 years plus that crews have lived on the space station. All three times were due to a false ammonia alarm in the US side of the outpost. So there's something there that's um, causing a problem. 
<laughs> oh, those crafty Americans. Wait a minute. <laughs> uh, at, least it's, at least it was a false alarm. That's it. I mean, yeah, that, that could have been fatal if something was a, was a miss. I mean, touch wood, they've, they've never had any serious problems where they've had to do a you know a proper evacuation using the Soyuz capsules as escape pods as it were right and considering that the ammonia is used as a, as a coolant mm. that could uh, yeah that could have been a, a problem in, in other ways too Every year, the Royal Institution of London hosts the Christmas Lectures. Now, the Christmas Lectures are a season of lectures aimed at teaching science to young people. They were created by Michael Faraday in 1825, and he went on to host the lecture season 19 times. Other notable lectures have been uh, Richard Dawkins, Sir David Attenborough, and Carl Sagan. Since 1936, the Christmas lectures have been televised, and I've watched them almost every year since I've been about eight or nine. During the 2014 Christmas lectures, Professor Danielle George spoke to the International Space Station using her mobile phone. Have a listen to the extracts here from the call that was used as an introduction to the lecture. This lecture is all about communication, but I know I've got my work cut out tonight. With the ability to make video calls to anyone, anywhere, where could I possibly call that would amaze you? Australia, Antarctica, how about space? Station, this is Danielle from the Royal Institution in London. How do you hear me? I hear loud and clear. Great. Hi, Samantha. I'm able to talk to you just using my mobile phone from here but I'm guessing you can't use your mobile phone from, from up in space. So how do you communicate with your friends and family? It's funny that you mentioned that because I've been up here for about three weeks and I have never thought about my mobile phone once while uh, when I'm on Earth, I'm constantly checking my mobile phone. So I guess I am getting over my mobile phone addiction. But we are not disconnected from our family and friends up here. We have uh, access to the internet. It's uh, somewhat slow, but uh, we do have it. We can even see them. We have a two-way video conference where we can see them and they can see us. It's really wonderful that we can hear and see you, but that's just using two of our senses. And, and so wouldn't it be great to be able to reach out and touch somebody and so use our other senses to communicate? What you say is interesting to be able to see uh, the world through somebody else's eyes or, or, or even being able to touch them. Um, I think there is an interesting uh, technology demonstration which uh, is um, co-developed by ESA where people on the ground can see what the astronaut sees and, um, and the astronaut can have information that can be sent from the ground. Well, thank you very much, Samantha. It's been great talking to you. Bye-bye. Thank you. So these um, lectures are just absolutely amazing. Um, as I say, they're, they're every Christmas, and uh, we have different themes, and this year it was all about communication. Um uh, oh, there's been uh, they feature all the different sciences um, some of my favourite ones are the, the chemistry ones because it normally involves explosions and things um, <laughs> so I love that <laughs> <laughs> 
But um, yeah, it's it's great. I mean, it's it's supposed to be aimed at kids from around sort of like age ten up to uh, you know your late teens. But I still learn stuff from them. <laughs> oh yeah, st- stuff like that. I don't. I'll be eighty years old and I'll still enjoy stuff like that. It's, it is. It's brilliant. And and as I said, I mean, when you've got the likes of um, Carl Sagan, mm-hmm. uh, who everyone holds close to their heart, really, when it comes to. Um, space-related documentaries. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking forward to the day that Neil deGrasse Tyson does one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> that would be absolutely amazing. Because um, obviously we, we've got our own version of uh, Neil uh, in the UK with Professor uh, Brian Cox. It's difficult to place him really because he's a particle physicist. So we, a lot of people say he's not actually poised to uh, talk about certain subjects because he's not an astrophysicist but he seems to do a lot of programs about um, astrophysics it's more of the fact he's an enthusiast Mm -hmm. in the subject Um, and obviously he was brought up uh, in the 60s grew up with the Apollo program and, and that inspired him to um, get involved I mean he's, he's he's one of these cool professors if you know what I mean he's a, <laughs> he was in a rock band in the 1980s um, in 1990s he was in in a band called D-Ream I don't know if you had those in the, in, in the States they um, did a song called Things Can Only Get Better um, which was um, Tony Blair's campaign theme when he first started to run for <laughs> prime minister, and yeah, he was the keyboard player of this of this band. <laughs> and uh, nice, yeah, they keep bringing it up <laughs> every time he does an interview. That well, that's okay. I mean, it's it's no worse than Brian May of Queen. He's got his his master's or his doctorate in uh, was it isn't it astrophysics or something? Like yeah, that it is. Yeah, astrophysics. I mean, I think that's kind of cool that he started doing his his PhD in in 1971 and went, hey, rock and roll, and then gave it up (laughs) and and, and did it again, what was it, about three or four years ago, I think he finished his PhD. Yeah, it was recently. (laughs) I'll include links to the whole conversation because obviously that was a a, a bridged uh, version of it for the program, but there is... um, the whole conversation on um, on YouTube, so I'll, I'll put a link up to that. I also put a link to the the Christmas lectures as well. So, if anybody wants to watch them, they they are available to watch. Um, there are archives there as well on YouTube, um, and I do believe the Carl Sagan ones are available for viewing. So um, that's definitely worth cool. having a look at. Also, while we're on the thing of conversations, uh, Jeremy Vine from BBC Radio also called into the space station for a chat recently. And here's a, an extract from it. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Absolutely, we are ready. BBC Radio, this is Mission Control Houston. Please call station for a voice check. Station, this is BBC Radio. How do you hear me? BBC Radio, we have you loud and clear. Welcome aboard the International Space Station. A great pleasure to speak to you both. Happy birthday, I gather, Commander Wilmore, and of course at this time of year, Happy New Year. Tell us, first of all, how important are these celebrations to bond you as a team up in space? You know, it has actually bonded us pretty nicely as a team, uh, celebrating these special holidays. Christmas, of course, my birthday yesterday, and the crew made it really special because they said nothing to me at all initially for the first hour of the day. Uh, Nothing at all. And then, of course, Mission Control, they had it all planned, and they had a big surprise. And, you know, on the, some, some of the notes we get, stuff on that, and then uh, singing and all, it was, it was certainly special. 
And did you get any nice presents, Commander? I did, actually. My Russian colleagues, they gave me a nice little uh, Russian medal. And uh, Terry Burtz, our other uh, uh, U.S. Uh, astronaut, he gave me a big bag of Reese's Pieces. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose it, you, need to, you need to keep them, don't you? Because you can't return them to any store up there, I would imagine. Um, <laughs> Samantha, tell us, is it possible to, to paint a picture of where you are precisely now? And what do you see out of the window? You know, I don't have awareness right now of where we are in this precise moment. But I can tell you that these um, are very special days for us. Uh, sometime this morning, we have seen our last sunset for several days. Um, you probably heard that normally here on board the space station, we see 15 to 16 sunsets and sunrises every day. But now we're going into a very special period in which we basically track along what we call the Terminator, which is the line between daylight and uh, night on, on the ground. And so we're basically for four or five days will be in this permanent twilight condition where it's never night and it's never really day and it makes for, for beautiful views out the window. What does that feel like experiencing something like that that you know we could only imagine about when we're down here on Earth? Honestly, I, it is very difficult to put into words because the colors are so vivid. I mean, to look and see mountaintops, mountain ranges, the entire Himalaya mountains, including Mount Everest and all the other beauty of those mountains and the uh, Sierra Nevadas in the United States, the Alps in Europe. I mean, it's just mesmerizing. The colors of the waters, the various colors, the greens that are in some of the waters, the aqua, the deep blue. It's hard to put into words other than, other than to say it's just absolutely amazing. Well, you've done a terrific job for us. Thank you. Uh, tell us, Commander, how long have you been personally in space? And what have you been able to achieve in that time? Oh my, well, three months. And I tell you what, in three months, it's been uh, quite uh, quite busy. We've uh, received and sent uh, SpaceX, one of the cargo vehicles arrived early in my, uh, in my increment, and we sent it back. And uh, we'll be receiving another SpaceX cargo vehicle soon. We've received several progress vehicles. And each of these cargo vehicles bring a great deal of supplies, cargo, and of course, experiments as well. So every time uh, they're here, we are very busy doing various experiments on various different things, earth sciences, physical sciences, and, and everything in between. And I gather, Samantha, that there are some spacewalks planned uh, early in the new year. Again, what, what is the what is the mission there? What is the aim? Well, actually, I'll pass it to Butch for uh, this answer because uh, he and Terry will actually be doing those spacewalks and I'll be supporting <laughs> as uh, what we call the intravehicular officer. <laughs> yeah, we're outfitting the exterior station. We have some cargo vehicles and, and crewed vehicles that are in design right now that eventually will dock to the space station. And those docking uh, mechanisms are different than what we actually have on station now we have the old shuttle mechanism we have to put some new docking adapters on there and before we even put those docking adapters on there we have to run power to those and we'll be laying a great deal of cable to power those docking adapters which will eventually arrive but before i finish terry and i are scheduled to do those spacewalks but i can tell you being the iva the person that suits us up and, and, and sends us out and brings us back in is by far the hardest job i kid you not it is the hardest job and that's what samantha will be doing for us okay a few a few quick fire questions for you uh, from our listeners in particular who you know forgive us we don't know much about how you guys operate on a day-to-day -day basis so maybe you can give us an insight first of all how do you sleep 
First of all, I have to say I sleep great up here. It's the best sleep I've ever had in my life. I've had it up here on the space station. Um, we basically sleep floating. Well, it depends. Uh, people have different preferences, but personally, I just love to sleep in a sleeping bag. We all have our sleeping bag, and I just love to leave it floating. Each of us has a little cabin. It's about the size of, of the old uh, phone booths for those who are old enough to remember those. Um, and, and I just let myself float in there, and I don't float far, and I get I probably bounce off the walls a few times during the night, but it's a very gentle bouncing. It does not wake me up at all. And that feeling of just having my body completely relaxed and no pressure on any side of my body is just wonderful. I just love it. And what do you eat? Absolutely anything that we can get our hands on. <laughs> For some reason, I'm not sure what it is, but my appetite is three times what it is on Earth. And they actually cut back our rations a little bit because we have so many days we bring out some more food because Samantha's with us, but I tell you what, the young lady can eat as well, so she, she can pack it away just like the rest of us. We, we do stay hungry. Thank you so much for joining us from space. I know a British astronaut, Tim Peake, is going to be joining you, which will be an amazing moment for everyone here in the, in the UK. We appreciate your time. Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you all as well and all your listeners. It's amazing to, to actually hear these uh, telecommunications that you get between the space station and Earth. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when I can say, uh, you know, station, this is TGP nominal. How do you hear me? Um, <laughs> <laughs> That would be very cool. Now, my question to you is, from that segment, do you guys even know what Reese's Pieces are? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know if it was available over there or not. Um, we, we have these shops that you can buy American products in, and to be honest, I'm not impressed. <laughs> that seems to be pretty much the feeling for anything that Hershey's makes outside, uh, you know, when, when uh, people outside the U.S. try it. It, um, it tastes... Um, I think overly sugary, but synthetically sugary. Welcome to America. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yeah, it's... <laughs> it was an experience actually trying uh, candies for the first time in the States because, you know, um, you, you grow up watching a lot of American TV shows and you see these different things and you think... Yeah, I must try that when I go there. And you go into a convenience store, you know, like Seven <laughs> Eleven or something, and uh, you, you're buying all this stuff, and you're going, nah. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, you know what? Uh, our friend Paul Stoneman—that was pretty much his reaction when he tried Hershey for the first time. <laughs> his his one reaction was, um, no. <laughs> Um, the one thing I do miss from, from the States is some of the, the sodas, the soft drinks. Mm. We have Mountain Dew in oh, the UK, yes. but it's an energy drink in the UK. In fact, that's what I've got in front of me right now. <laughs> I like the throwback. I love the throwback. Because I was living on the stuff when I was in America. Mm-hmm. It's the same with other drinks as well. I mean, even Sprite doesn't taste right over here. <laughs> it's it's weird. Well, see, it's also it's funny when my wife and I went to England back in 2004. When we're here, she hates Coke over here. She mm -hmm. absolutely hates it. She couldn't get enough of it when it, when we were over in England because the formula is different, and she she loved it. Well, I, I don't know if you've got it in the States. I'd imagine you would. Coke Life? Nope. It's, it's in a green... It's a green label and a green top on the bottle. 
Um, and it's instead of having it hasn't got any sugar in it but it's got this thing called stevia which is a um, mm. uh, a replacement substitute for yeah. uh, for sugar but I've heard of it. It, it's it's a natural ingredient rather than the rubbish that you get in uh, yeah. in diet coke and and um, uh, what's the other one coke zero isn't it yeah which um, I didn't realize that but coke zero is actually exactly the same as diet coke but made for men <laughs> Is that the marketing scheme over there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the same with Pepsi Max. <laughs> Pepsi Max, yeah, okay, yeah, that one I understand. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really nice. It's, it, it might be called something else in the States, but it's it's called Coke Life, and uh, it, it's, it's supposed to be, you know, environmentally friendly, hence why it's got the green label on it rather than the red one. Um, no. <laughs> the only thing Coke makes that's in a green bottle and a green cap over here is Sprite. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, when it came out, everyone was going nuts over it because, oh, Coke with a green label, what's that all about? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I just thought to myself, well, maybe Coke are beginning to admit that the chemicals that are in Diet Coke are not actually good for you and this is what they should be bringing out instead. <laughs> it would be nice. <laughs> Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. To paraphrase another space-based uh, popular phrase, you could say uh, the beagle has landed. It certainly has, eventually. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, launched by ESA back in 2003, it just seemed to have disappeared. Uh, but it's been found. The Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter actually found it. Um, and obviously they didn't know what happened. It just simply lost contact. They didn't know what was going on. But it turns out that it did land, and it did start to deploy everything. But unfortunately, there are five sections to it that need to deploy before it can, like uh, four solar panels and then another section that need to deploy before it has enough energy to start transmitting information back. And only two of them deployed. It's um, a bit of a design flaw in, in that respect, really, because if, if it was designed so that it, the antenna could be there without deploying everything, then they still right. would have got the signal, but then it wouldn't have lasted very long because you needed the solar panels to keep the power going, really, um, right. just like they did with mm -hmm. Villay, uh, which was unfortunate as well. The whole process um, was actually covered in the 2003 Christmas lectures. They actually were waiting for the signal live on British television. <laughs> and nothing happened. And, yeah. um, you know, how you, you've got a room full of kids who were quite excited about the whole thing to tell them, uh, yeah, it hasn't worked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the other, this is one of those things where, like, in hindsight, you could say, why did they design it that way? where the antenna was completely covered until all of them deployed instead of you know just having at least some spot for the antenna to break through even if it only had partial power so i mean they pretty much set themselves up where it's all or nothing yeah but then when you see the size of the the actual lander itself it's it's only what seven foot across that's 2.1 meters yeah oh no they definitely packed a lot of stuff in there but uh, it's, it's just unfortunate that the way that it was designed, everything had to be absolutely perfect to get any data back. But, I mean, it, it's been found, which is amazing in and of itself because of how small it is. So, And at least they know that they had partial deployment of the solar panels. So, 
it would be nice to be able to collect the data that it got, but unfortunately, that's that's just impossible. The the other sad thing about the the story is that Colin Pillinger, the guy who masterminded the whole project, um, he died last year. Yeah. So he didn't actually know that Beagle Two had actually made it. Yeah, that that would have been. I heard about that too. That would have been really nice, just to at least say, hey, you know what? We almost had it, as but, opposed to what happened. But the thing is, from that project, people have learned from that because of how things were done. The other landers that are on there, which I believe we're coming to later, have all evolved from that moment. Mm-hmm. So it, it it wasn't a waste of time at all, oh, really, no, when you think all. about it. I mean, even, even the Comet Lander, okay, yeah, it had its problems. It landed in a valley as opposed to someplace where it could have had more sunlight, but we landed on a comet. Yeah. <laughs> that's no small incident. We're, 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 we landed on something that's actually moving. Yeah. <laughs> or something moving, hitting something that was moving. It's um, Yeah, I mean, that, that's the only real drawback to this sort of setback. It's going to be years before you can get something out to replace it based on you know whatever information you learned from that it takes years to develop something uh, i was listening to something earlier about uh, the, the time that it takes to come up with these ideas that um somebody was at um college and developed an item and by the time it was pushed through and everything went through gradually to get it into space they'd qualified as a, a, a medical doctor um, by the time it had finished. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, that, that comet lander was, what, 10 years from design to landing? 10 years? Yeah. Or, or something to that effect. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the actual um, research into it before that, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's you're looking at nearly 25 years probably but that that is the difference between how space travel is now compared with what it used to be Mm -hmm. I mean as I said before look look at the the time span that SpaceX has taken to get to the stage look at the Chinese they were nothing and then all of a sudden hang on we've got a space station Uh, we're putting people in space they've just put up a a lunar lander um where did all that come from? <laughs> well, I mean, let's be fair. How much of that came from the American and Russian space programs? Yeah, if you have a you look, know, a... if you, if you look at the design of the, the spaceships that they're using, it's very similar to the Soyuz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think they've had a look at a few plans and things from the <laughs> Russians. I think you, you can't blame them really for using that kind of technology. Oh no, not the, at all. The Soyuz. It just works. It works, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what's going on? Maybe it's another drill. Crowned with a commercial cargo capsule with 2.6 tons of scientific experiments, provisions, and maintenance items, SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket took off from Cape Canaveral on Saturday the 10th of January, sending the Dragon supply ship on a two-day trek to the International Space Station. 
The 208 foot long Falcon 9 fired its 9 Merlin 1D main engines, burning a mixture of kerosene and liquid oxygen and throttled up to 1.3 million pounds of thrust before climbing into the sky at 447 EST 947 GMT. Among the supplies packed inside the Dragon capsule were spacewalk tools, equipment to help prepare the space station to receive commercial crew vehicles, as Barry Wilmore mentioned in that clip earlier, an IMAX camera, and science payloads that will enable model organism research using fruit flies and will study flatworms to better understand wound healing in space. Pain, it works. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing what you can learn from worms. NASA's Cloud Aerosol Transport System, or CATS. Now, what way do you think that works? So they, when they're trying to find the acronyms for things, it's like they got... Right, okay, what can we get from that? <laughs> yeah, so th- this CATS system is bolted inside Dragon's unpressurized trunk. The space station's robotic system will unpack the CATS instrument and mount it outside of the space station to monitor cloud and aerosol coverage, which directly impacts global climate, which apparently the global climate, or global warming as they call it, is causing the snow. Yeah, I don't know either. No, no, no. that's a totally different topic from getting started. (laughs) Let's keep this based on space and space exploration and so forth. The launch marks SpaceX's fifth resupply mission to the space station under a 1.6 billion dollar 12 mission contract with nasa covering cargo services until the end of 2016 it's a critical delivery for the space station which hasn't received supplies for four months since the orbital sciences and terry supply rocket exploded on liftoff in Mm. october Uh, With Orbital Sciences cargo services grounded until at least late 2015, SpaceX is the only provider dedicated to sending up US experiments and supplies to the space station. And not only that, it's got all their Christmas presents on there as well. So uh, that was (laughs) most important. (laughs) The first stage of the Falcon 9's... uh, rocket completed a series of maneuvers to fly back from the edge of space to soft land on the barge dubbed the autonomous spaceport drone ship spacex founder and ceo elon musk tweeted the first stage booster reached the platform but landed hard or as your average joe would call it crashed into the deck (laughs) Um, the so-called hard landing was pretty dramatic judging by a vine that was posted by spacex now i know you've seen this vine that was an amazing explosion it was like something from Thunderbirds or, or, or yeah. something, wasn't it? it was huge. When they said it, it, it hit the ground, I, I thought it was like, oh, that, that, that's it. No, it wasn't quite like that. No. A big ball of flame, basically. Yeah. But did you see the uh, the picture of the pad after that? Yeah. Those containers at the end of the barge really took a beating, didn't they? Yeah, they did, but for the most part, the barge was like, yeah, okay, whatever, bring it up, bring it on, come on, give us another one. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this, um, there's two barges uh, they've made. Um, obviously, for when they launch the Falcon Heavy, it's going to have two booster rockets on it, so they want to land both those on the pads. But they've named the two pads after um, Ian Banks, the um, sci-fi writer. They, they've named Ooh. them after two of his novels. That's cool. That was another one of Elon's ideas. 
that guy's amazing he is isn't he if you haven't had a chance to see it yet check out the show notes because I've embedded the vine into the, the show notes page so you, you can have a look at that the booster's final landing burn with a single Merlin engine was supposed to slow the rocket's fall for a soft landing on the drone ship four grid fins were added to the booster for aerodynamic stability and the the rocket stage was supposed to extend four legs that were folded against the booster during the liftoff elon musk said on twitter that hydraulic fluid powering the rocket's four stabilization fins apparently ran out of fluid on the final descent elon musk later added on twitter that although the ship survived the impact some of the support equipment needed to be replaced well that was obvious from yeah. when you look at the pictures uh, the damage is really visible on, on the yeah. photos during the daylight hours so there's also uh, some of the pictures uh, are on the show notes as well uh, engineers plan to add some more hydraulic fluid to the rocket for an upcoming launch which will try to perform the recovery experiment again if SpaceX succeeds engineers will inspect the rockets to see what work is required to refurbish it for another flight the ultimate goal is to make the Falcon 9 rocket reusable an achievement that SpaceX says will reduce the cost of space launches now according to filings the Federal Communications Commission SpaceX plans to fly another flyback uh, maneuver on the next Falcon 9 launch a liftoff has been penciled in for the 8th of February at uh, 11.10 GMT or 6.10 EST hopefully we will be bringing you the launch coverage from the TGP nominal launch pad you'll find that on the menu of the website under tow from a tugboat the 300 foot long drone ship arrived at the port of Jacksonville in Florida on the afternoon of Sunday the 11th of January and the Dragon capsule rendezvoused with the space station on the 12th of January when uh, Butch Wilmore captured the free flying spacecraft using Canada Arm 2. It is amazing what they try to achieve. If you try and put it into uh, another perspective, it's, it's trying to fire an arrow at a target that is being shaken. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's just, no, Okay, yes, they had the explosion, they lost the rocket and so forth, but there's no way that you can't consider that to be a success. I mean, it came down and it landed, really, it just didn't land cleanly. Yeah. That, that's amazing. And for the first go as well, it's, well it, it isn't really the first go because they've, they've actually got it to soft land on, on the water already, haven't they? But it's the first time they've actually got it to land on the on the deck of, of one of these mm-hmm. drone ships. There's a couple of pictures of it um, hurtling across the sea with uh, all its lights on. Um, it, that kind of looked kind of eerie as it uh, <laughs> went across the sea, unmanned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to see it. I hope that I think the next time it probably will succeed. Well, they came so close this time around. Well, they, it seems like they know what's wrong. And the thing is, once again, I quickly found out what's wrong. And not being nasty, but if it had been one of the government-funded programs. Yeah that would have been another couple of years before they would have probably that's that's the one thing i like about this new commercial space programs that are out there it it is very quick to sort things out unlike the uh the orion is great absolutely fantastic but the rocket that it's going to be attached to yeah i'm not too sure (laughs) the sls Well, you know, we'll yeah. see. Okay, just wait till the Falcon Heavy comes out. Oh, I'm really looking forward to that. So am I. I, I definitely want to see that thing take off. Um, yeah, I'd like to be 
well not up close but you, you know what I mean <laughs> um, <laughs> several miles up close <laughs> it's well, what is it the, the the radius is four miles isn't it you have to be away from from any launch I think yeah something like that because I know they've had to scrub a couple of missions because some idiot was in his boats go floating across the port of Cape Canaveral <laughs> oh. <laughs> didn't you get the memo you know it was yes. one of those kind of things <laughs> the three cuckoos podcast you are here you have downloaded us thank you very very much that's an enormous moth final cut of the podcast we'll leave it to the deaf member yeah, of the, the deaf member of the group yeah kissy fur was pretty good gummy kissy whoa hang on kissy fur turn your fleece into a trendy gilet hello pets and welcome to this week's how to thank you for the follow baratheon if I could turn back time thankings I'm Kevin <laughs> some cheese and a pickle cheese and fine wine oh it's the three cuckoos podcast that's it for this week's lucky news the worst podcast item ever tune in iTunes Stitcher download us subscribe us yeah. stream us visit our blog because I do that Yeah, and get us at three cuckoos that would be a show the next one John is one of yours it's uh, it Na- is. NASA celebrates 11 years of the Mars Rovers 11 years uh, it's uh, that is just amazing to think of opportunity landed on Mars in January of 2004, it's gone to roughly 26 miles across the surface of Mars, which is just astounding when you think it was supposed to last for three months. Yeah, but it's the same with a lot of the um, the hardware that's floating around in various places. It it's gone a lot longer than it should do. Yeah. You look at Voyager. Yeah. I mean that's well, I mean, just Voyager. I, well, I mean yeah, Voyager. They kind of meant to do that for that kind of mission, but. I mean, this one they're saying, oh, yeah, it'll last for three months, and if we get anything else, great. And now we're going on its 11th year. <laughs> you know, it wasn't designed for 11 years, but it's still chugging along. Well, it goes to show how well it was built. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a harsh terrain. It really yeah. is. I mean, and it has had its mechanical problems. It got trapped in a sand dune, and now it's unfortunately uh, experiencing a memory issue that they might not be able to recover from. But, I mean, this is one of those things where when NASA finally says, yeah, we can't do anything else with Opportunity, it's gone. It, it's one of those where you're going to feel a little bit sad for it. This is Because the, it just, it's been amazing for what it's been doing. This is the problem when, when you give the vehicles a personality. <laughs> People get attached. <laughs> well, you know, hey, you know, considering that it, it's now gone, so what would that be, 44 times longer than they expected? Yeah. They, they have all the rights to give it a personality oh definitely but it's, <laughs> it's the same with all the shuttles they every one of those shuttles had its own personality mm-hmm. uh, my my favorite was the discovery um she was a, a workhorse and she was a bit of a diva as well she uh, she had more times where they had to scrub a mission because she wasn't quite ready for her for her, <laughs> for a <her> stage presence <laughs> I know, I, yeah, I know what you mean. Columbia was mine only because, well, I mean, that's primarily because that was the first one. Yeah. And, you know, so I was like 10 years old when that thing took off. So Columbia always had a, a place. I was, it was always hard to find out that Columbia went down. Yeah. And um, it took seven astronauts with it. And also with me, Challenger uh, was oh. quite close to my heart because, um, you know, um, they sometimes flew um, postage stamp covers into space 
uh, with like limited edition numbers and mm-hmm. things. Um, I went to a kind of like an antiques fair, I guess, or a collector's fair, and I noticed this piece of paper with what looked like a space shuttle on it, and uh, my eye was drawn to it straight away. I then found out that the piece that I was looking at, um, it, it didn't cost me very much, it was only a couple of pounds, it was actually space flown. <laughs> Oh wow! So <laughs> I was over the moon. Oh man, that was a bad um, <laughs> thing to say. Um, yeah, I was quite <laughs> proud of the fact that I had something that was um, uh, space flown, and I've actually found a photograph of the crew of STS-8, um, which this um, thing was flown on with them actually holding one of these envelopes. Oh, nice. I've also obtained the mission patch. So what I'm going to do is put the uh, the envelope, the photograph, and the mission patch in a frame, and that will look so good. <laughs> That's nice. That's very cool. I was about to say, please tell me you still have that envelope. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't, I won't part with that. <laughs> no, don't blame you. But yeah, I think once it's in in a frame with with the the patch and the photograph as well, it'll it'll look nice on the wall. <laughs> Absolutely, very cool. Laura Larue here. Whenever I'm in the potosphere, there's only one place to be: the garbage pod. Hello there, garbage podophiles. Gareth Jones from Gareth Jones on Speed here. My name is Dr. Ryan Kobrick, and I'm the executive director of the Yuri's Night Global Executive Team. Rock the potosphere and rock the planet. My name is Kate Arkless Gray, but many people know me as Space Kate. Hey, Mark. Uh, welcome to NASA Edge. Yeah, it's good to be on the garbage path. Perhaps one of the last barriers to the human conquest of space has been removed. A space-rated espresso <laughs> machine is due to be delivered to the International Space Station. The device was made by two Turin-based companies, Lavazza Coffee and engineering firm Argotech. It's called the IS Espresso and will hopefully be delivered by a future Dragon resupply vessel. Italian astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti was asked about the new hardware in a recent interview and uh, she had this to say about it. The space station coffee is not bad. Um, it could be it could be a lot of worse. Um, so I'm, I'm not complaining in any way. But uh, I am indeed looking forward to uh, to the espresso machine. And um, uh, of course, there is some some challenges with the resupply now, as we know. But uh, I have heard good news, and uh, there is actually still a pretty good likelihood that it will be up here before um, I leave. And so I'm really looking forward to try this uh, space espresso. There is an open option for the next dragon, so that is uh, my hope right now. <laughs> you could hear. Um Barry Wilmore laughing in the background. <laughs> now, making coffee in space is extremely difficult, especially espresso, which relies on 94 degrees Celsius or 201 degrees Fahrenheit water being passed through ground coffee at high pressure. On Earth, this is achieved with the help of gravity. The ground coffee is placed into a perforated container, the water is heated and shot onto the coffee to drip into the cup. In space, there is no up or down, so things don't naturally fall. (laughs) Water and the scalding coffee would simply form droplets and float away, presenting a hazard to both the astronauts and to the sensitive electronics on board. So the ISS Espresso takes water from a pouch and pumps it around the machine. 
The water is heated and placed under pressure, then fired through a capsule of ground coffee. According to the Italian National Espresso Institute, I didn't even know that existed either. Um, <laughs> they take their coffee seriously. <laughs> the water must reach coffee at nine bar of pressure to be called certified Italian espresso. To guard against pre- uh, accidents, piping in the ice espresso can withstand pressures of up to 400 bar. The machine itself weighs 20 kilos or 44 pounds, which is the same as all the science instruments on the Philae Comic Lander put together. (laughs) Just for one coffee machine. (laughs) Hey, you know what? Even in Star Trek, they were on the fringes of space and they still needed to have their coffee. (laughs) Now, the resulting drink is pumped into another plastic pouch and the astronauts drink it through a straw. Um, I have a picture of the actual pouch and everything they have to use it it is like looking at a space age juice box really (laughs) it's it's not the pinnacle of chic usually associated with uh, espresso cups but Giuseppe Lavazza the vice president of the coffee company says the taste itself will be indistinguishable from that bought in earthbound coffee shops that it hey you know what if it makes it easier for them to do their stuff more power to them Oh yeah, especially if it's a long day, you know, it yeah. just keeps the energy going. Argo Tech have been working on the design since 2012, when previous Italian astronaut Luca Parmitano complained after a, only a week in orbit that the only thing he missed was a good Italian espresso. <laughs> a week. <laughs> Those hoping for cappuccino on the ISS, however, still have some time to wait. (laughs) The process relies on frothing milk using steam and then separating the resulting foam from the milk. On Earth, gravity does the separation for you. (laughs) In zero-g, the milk and the foam would just be inseparable unless you place the device in the centrifuge. (laughs) And let's where are you going to get a good barista on the ISS? <laughs> yeah, I can just see someone needs a, to draw all that stuff in the foam on the top. They they they, they need a, a a new uh, module added to the side of it with um, Starbucks written on the side of it. <laughs> NASA has designed its own version of an espresso machine, but instead of making coffee, it's going to look for life on Mars. The Mars Organic Analyzer would grind samples of Martian rock, then pass hot, high-pressured water over them and extract organic molecules. I'm not drinking that. It says here that the resulting liquid would taste about as good as the earlier ISS coffee. (laughs) 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 But the analyzer could be analyzed to betray the existence of past or present life on the red planet. Well, at least they're poking fun at their uh, space coffee. That's it. I mean, we've got um, Tim Peake going up there in November, um, and he says the only thing he's he's going to miss is a decent cup of tea. So, are they going to do something similar with a you know a special kind of space tea bag? I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> I know they've got. Um, one of the projects that he's working on um, with the children of, of the UK is about healthy eating and obviously it's difficult to eat healthily in space because everything's all pre-packed and, 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 right. and that although they do have fresh fruit and vegetables up there so he's enlisted the help of one of our more bizarre chefs 
uh, a guy called Heston Blumenthal. Um, I know the name, and that's about it. He is, well, he doesn't have a kitchen as such. It's more like a science lab. He experiments with food, putting things through high pressure and all kinds of... He, he doesn't cook normally. He, he does things really, really strangely, but makes some fantastic television programs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he makes things different i he tried to make a room that was a bit like going into something out of willy wonka where he had wallpaper that tasted like different fruits it had stripy wallpaper and you could lick the wallpaper and it tasted <laughs> like fruit nice uh, and that's the kind of thing he does I'm, I'm, I'm sure there'll be things about him on on youtube if you don't know who who he is uh, if, if you want to know what he looks like he looks a, slightly like brains from thunderbirds he, he <laughs> looks a little bit like that <laughs> yeah he's a great guy though. he really is nice have you ever had uh, have you ever had space food before um i've had space ice cream the yep, that's the one yeah <laughs> um you, you can get those in in most of the gift shops in like science museums and things yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> they're actually pretty good they're not bad um the, the the thing that they eat a lot in base are um tortilla wraps um, hmm. mainly, that makes sense mainly because you don't get crumbs right and it's self-contained um so, yeah that makes sense so yeah there's a lot of a lot of Mexican food eaten on board the ISS. Um, I'm not too sure if that's really good in a confined situation. About to say situation. that, that writes its own jokes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was talking to someone when when we did the um, Yuri's Night show last year. Uh, one of the things we mentioned was about the fact that you're up there for a certain amount of time, but you can't launder clothes. So what do you do? Um, you actually throw mm. them away and you get new ones, but you don't your clothes don't get so dirty so quickly um, that's interesting well yeah i mean well yeah i mean you're not really touching any services so um and there's no um dust or anything in space so right you don't well there is outside but not in in the confined situations the only problem with that is because you're not having to wash your clothes so often i said so what is like the smell of the iss and they said the best <laughs> way of describing it would be uh, have you have you ever been in one of these well, you are you're a gamer yourself so you've probably been in these 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 stores that sell um games that have been reused you know second hand sure. uh, yeah so it kind of smells like a teenage boy's bedroom <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, it could have been worse. It could have said locker room. Yeah, that's... Well, <laughs> the only difference between that and a teenage boy's bedroom, I guess, would be the um, the muscle rub, uh, sort of, like, deep, deep heat or whatever, the, the ligament oils and things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, then it would at least smell like wintergreen, you know. Yeah, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> A logo has been chosen for the ESA astronaut Tim Peake's Principia mission to the International Space Station in November. The children's BBC TV show, Blue Peter, asked schoolchildren to design a mission patch for Tim and received over 3,000 entries. Uh, the winning entry was by a 13-year-old boy from Manchester called Troy, who explained Principia refers to Isaac Newton's principal laws of gravity and motion. So I drew an apple because that's how he discovered gravity. Well, 
gravity was always there but you know what he means <laughs> plus Tim Peake is promoting healthy eating as part of his mission and apples are healthy if you look carefully in the reflection on the apple you will see the glint of a stylized space station also on the patch is the Soyuz rocket that will be taking Tim to, into space as it flies over the UK and the colours of the Union flag run along the border. Each ESA astronaut has a mission name and patch. For example, Samantha Cristoforetti's mission is called Futura. The judges from ESA, Blue Peter and the UK Space Agency chose their favourites from each of the three age groups, 6 to 8 year olds, 9 to 11 year olds and 12 to 15 year olds to ensure fair chance for all applicants. Trees, apples and spaceships and maps of the UK were common elements. ESA graphic designer Karen Oldenburg was impressed by the variety. The entries were amazingly diverse. It was obvious that each child had put a lot of individuality and inventiveness into each design, she said. Important considerations for designing the final six were how the design would look as a patch, the colours that were used, and whether the children drew everything on their own, because you know how that goes. <laughs> um, the final decision came down to Tim himself. He had a hard time choosing. I've been so impressed with the high standard and the number of entries. It's been wonderful. My final choice was not easy to make, but I chose Troy's design because his patch was simple but included many references to my mission. Uh, yesterday it was announced who was going to be making the patches and uh, a company called Stuart Emblems or Stuart Aviation has been chosen to make the patches. Now I will put a link to Stuart Emblems on the um, show notes on the website so that if you want to purchase one of these uh, patches you can only get them from there because because they are the official source. I've actually phoned them today and I've ordered mine already. <laughs> <laughs> and no one is surprised. <laughs> Are you aware of Blue Peter, John? It doesn't sound familiar, no. Blue Peter is the longest-running television series in the world for children. Basically, it's a magazine show. Uh, they have all kinds of bits and pieces on there. They have recipes and all that kind of thing for kids to, to do and things that they can make and um, interesting articles. And they have challenges during the summer where the team of Blue Peter get to go to fantastic countries and do weird and wonderful things like um, going down the Amazon in a kayak and things like that you know that kind of stuff nice um, and also the, the kids who win the competition they win a thing called a Blue Peter badge and now these badges you can only get them if you've won a competition on this television program and you can go to all these fantastic um, museums and things and get in for free because you're a badge winner. So That's very cool. Yeah. Uh, I wish I could learn more about it, except I live outside the UK. Therefore, I am blocked on the website. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. It used to be on BBC One. Uh, it used to be one of their flagship children's programs on BBC One, but they have no children's programs on BBC One at all now. It's um, They have a dedicated children's bbc channel now so um it means you can get well i wouldn't say decent programs because during the daytime well daytime tv i don't know if it's the same in the states but <laughs> it's, it's it's yeah it's garbage it pretty much is <laughs> uh, we, we've unfortunately we have tv overload over here where you have 500 channels none of them are worth watching yeah and we've got like 
at least five or six uh, channels specifically for kids. Yeah, we have a lot of the, the same channels uh, here, like Fox Kids and Nickelodeon yep. and uh, yep. all the different Disney channels and stuff. Yep. Which I do watch sometimes only because of the Star Wars Rebels. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a different story. Now we come to our final story of the evening and it's kind of sad because time has run out for NASA Kennedy Space Center's countdown clock. Years of hurricanes and harsh Florida humidity and sunshine have taken their toll and the historic icon has been replaced. The countdown clock at Kennedy's press site is considered to be one of the most watched timepieces in the world and may only be to be second in popularity to Big Ben's great clock in London, England. It has also been the backdrop for many Hollywood movies. Designed by Kennedy engineers and built by Kennedy technicians in 1969, the countdown clock has become harder to maintain because the parts are getting older and more difficult to obtain. Not including the base, the famous landmark is nearly 6 feet high, 26 feet wide and 3 feet deep. Each numerical digit, 6 in all, is about 4 feet high and 2 feet wide. Each digit uses 56 40 watt light bulbs, the same ones found in your local hardware store. There are 349 bulbs in the clock, including the plus and the minus sign, which takes up 9 bulbs. And then there's a pair of colons, which uses another four bulbs. In 2004, the clock was damaged by Hurricane Charlie. It was then that NASA decided it was time for an upgrade. 2004. <laughs> and they've only just got round to <laughs> changing it. See, this is what I'm saying. It takes them forever. Going at the speed of government. <laughs> The countdown clock has always been tied visually with the flagpole um, 34 feet away. Officially called the press site clock and flagpole, the pair was listed in the National Register of Historic Places on January 21, 2000, and they are historically associated with all space program launches since the moon landings more than 40 years ago. That thing's pretty iconic. You know, that was the thing, watching the space shuttles going live. You always watch that clock, you know, and, and in the press photos, that thing was always in the foreground as, a, as the shuttle took off. So, uh, yeah, that, that's one of those things that's just, uh, it hits you a little bit if you're a space enthusiast. I mean, when you look at the, some of the, the amazing things that this clock has, has counted down, I mean, you've had, as it said, the moon landings in 69, Skylab in 73, you had the, the Apollo Soyuz test project in 75, Columbia's launch in 81, the Hubble Space Telescope launch in 1990, and then obviously the final shuttle launch, STS-135, in July 2011. On the 4th of December 2014, the next generation of uh, spaceflight also received the next generation clock to count it down for launch. The new display sits on the same base as the former countdown clock and was assembled about a week before the Orion headed into space for its test flight. Um, NASA's whole pre-launch program will be available to showcase on the display so if the numbers stop counting down those following along won't have to wonder whether it was a built-in hold or a technical glitch with the rocket. They'll know exactly what's happening quickly from the screen. The new display is very similar to, in size to the historic clock and has a video resolution of 1280 by 360 so it's not true high def but has the capability of utilizing the latest breakthroughs in outdoor led display technology 
The display, which comes at a cost of $280,000, uh, will provide images from multiple sources as well as the countdown launch time. And if you watch the Orion test flight in December, you will notice that NASA TV was being streamed to the display before the launch. So that means video streaming is also possible. While the new display takes over the watch for launch day, the former clock will be set up again at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex and will run in sync with launches so that the public will be able to see it close up. So it's, it's not gone forever. You still will be able to see it at uh, KSC. Just like they do with most of their stuff, somebody's always going to have some kind of... Uh perspective on it and say, wow, it would really be cool to see something or other. So, but, you know, that's cool to think, you know, got to progress. Yeah, I mean, basically, the, the the new display is one of those Jumbotron things, isn't it, really? Right. <laughs> but it, it kind of looks cool. As long as they don't get really tacky with the countdowns like New York does at, uh, you know, New Year's Eve, <laughs> all these crazy animations for every second. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's just the same, the, the, just the normal... <laughs> digits going round but you'll find pictures of the new countdown clock as well as pictures of the crews dismantling the old one in the show notes uh, you'll find pictures web links and extra content related to all the stories featured in this show there too Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. It's been really good having you on board, TGP Nominal. You're the first guest on the show. So, well, uh... thank you. And I'm <laughs> probably going to be the last time I'm going to show up. <laughs> I can just imagine the email saying, don't ever get that Yankee on there again. I can't see that happening. <laughs> Yeah, it's been absolutely brilliant. And and you're welcome to come on board anytime you like. Just let me know. Awesome. I'm always good. When it comes to space and stuff like I've been into space and things like that uh, since be- long before I was into you know, really into movies. So th- this one uh, grasps at the old heartstrings more than the movies do. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that uh, especially, can I say it, people of a certain age... <laughs> we do embrace the the whole space thing more than younger generation um i'm hoping that some of these new ventures will spark something with with them as well i think it i mean there's always going to be an interest for this sort of thing because there's always stuff that's unknown and to be discovered out there whereas movies lately have been just oh hey let's pick a movie from 30 years ago and remake it oh. so <laughs> I mean, so no, there's always going to be an interest in space and science. There's one thing that really, really bugs me, and it goes back to um, Bruce Willis in um, Armageddon. <laughs> okay. And Uh-oh. It's the, <laughs> the fact that they've got two shuttles launching at the same time, that close together, <laughs> never going to happen. <laughs> Well, certainly not now. But <laughs> uh, the, I can one will go up and the other one will just be veering off somewhere else because of the the backlash it's getting from the other one. Yeah. <laughs> I, 
you, you gotta take anything from Hollywood with a grain of salt. Yeah, even the ones that, that are supposedly quite accurate. And I think, yeah. I think you know where I'm going with that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have this thing every year in the UK called Stargazing Live. And as you can guess, it's a live show. Uh, it's from Jodrell Bank uh, up in the north of England where uh, we've got all these um, telescopes and uh, amazing technology there. And it's joined with projects all around the UK um, to try and boost people into um, astronomy and it's got this brian cox guy and he's telling you all these facts and figures in a fun way they have guests on there some of them are scientists some of them are not scientists but quite enthusiastic about it um (laughs) generally that you know you get a lot of like stand-up comics on there and well observational comics should i say and it's really good and i think it brings it home to people um because it doesn't talk down to them it's not full of scientific jargon it's done in a way that people can understand your average joe can understand what's going on and it's usually the first week in january but for some reason this year it's happening in march so i don't know what's happening in march i'll have to look into it there must be something special going on for them to to delay it by a couple of months so uh, that'll be something that we'll be talking about on the show at a later point i'm hoping that i can contact our local astronomy group the letchworth and district astronomy association we've got a, a little observatory here and um yeah i'm hoping to talk with them could be quite an interesting show that should be very cool and we, we've also got plans in the making for our yuri's night show this year i was hoping to get some inclusion from isa but uh, i got a really nice email from them actually saying that they've had a lot of people asking the same kind of things at this time of year for Yuri's Night um, but they've, they've given me some heads up on a, a few places where I might be able to get some people involved so I've got some other irons in the fire as it were um, <laughs> to make something equally as good as the uh, Space Cadets Guide to Space from last year which was really enjoyable to make <laughs> Hey, you know, but when you, when you find a passion doing anything with it is always some kind of fun Yeah, absolutely well, as I say, thanks again for coming on board, John. Well, thanks for asking me. And uh, we'll speak to you all again soon. Uh, absolutely. Take care. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit www.tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode of TGP Nominal. Just look for the relevant tab in the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the website, which include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. Don't forget to review us and give us a five-star rating. You can also listen to rebroadcasts of our shows on the 1800 Online Network at www.1800online.weebly.com. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Thanks for listening, and I'll speak to you all again soon. Station, this is Houston ACR. That concludes the event. Thank you.